Music is central to our well-being. If you're listening here, chances are you feel the same. The Classical Post podcast uncovers the creativity that exists behind great music. We believe music is interconnected with other art forms and life experiences. It doesn't exist in a vacuum, but is often influenced by other sources. No matter who you are, cultivating your creativity is fundamental to being better in business and living a more holistic life. Discover more on this podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Eifert. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope you find something valuable in this episode. Composer Stephen Mackey has come a long way since his teenage years studying physics at the University of California, Davis, and learning blues rock riffs on his guitar. Today, Mackey stands as a celebrated composer and electric guitarist whose work is regularly performed by orchestras around the world, including the LA Phil, National Symphony, and the Boston Symphony. He's taught composition at Princeton University for nearly 40 years and has served as a composer in residence at the Curtis Institute of Music, Tanglewood, and the Aspen Music Festival. On his latest album, Beautiful Passing, Mackey brings together two works inspired by personal experiences that deeply informed his views on memory, life, and death. Namasini's Pool and Beautiful Passing, a violin concerto Mackey composed after watching his mother pass away from cancer. Despite the presence of death woven throughout both works, Mackey made sure to find moments of levity and humor in his music. In this episode, we talk more about the new album, and Mackey shares the profoundly moving story of his mother's death and how it influenced Beautiful Passing's title. Plus, he discusses the parallels he sees between filmmaking, cooking, and composition, and his go-to spot for Italian food on Manhattan's Upper West Side. I am Stephen Mackey, and I'm a composer and a professor of music at Princeton University, and I also do some teaching at the Curtis Institute. I started life as a rock musician and got into um, concert music around the age of 20. Let's talk about aesthetics outside of music. Where do you find inspiration to create music? Well, I think there are kind of two main sources from me. One is really very personal things. Like I've got uh, some of my best pieces come from really personal experiences. I wrote a piece called Ars Moriendi, which was about the experience of watching my father die. I have uh, a, a violin. That's a string quartet. I have a violin concerto called Beautiful Passing, which is on a CD that's being released tomorrow. That's inspired by the experience of watching my mother die. I've got a piece called Stumble to Grace, which is a piano concerto, which is about watching my son learn how to walk and, you know, things like that. You know, so a lot of inspiration just comes from me, you know, things that, that touch my heart and uh, they percolate for a while and they come out as music. On the other end of the spectrum, kind of as far away from that kind of inner world, Another big source of inspiration to me is the cosmos. I was a, a physics major for a few years. I changed at the end, but I was a physics major for three years at the University of California at Davis. The first orchestra piece I ever wrote was called The Big Bang and Beyond. I've written a string quartet called String Theory. I just finished a concerto for orchestra for the Boston Symphony called Concerto for Curved Space. All those pieces kind of inspired by the wonder of the universe. I mean, it's a, it's starting from being a kid staring up at the stars and wondering, you know, what's it all mean? 
and then you know learning something about the universe whatever you know our given our perceptual limitations so like i say there's these two very very different places you know deep inner ideas and and unknowable outer ideas it's rather profound, especially to draw inspiration there, because I've, I've spoken to various people now about this specifically, and especially drawing on death. If we can go back to that a little bit, that's, that's really fascinating, especially the personal examples that you have. In some ways, I think that that might be unusual, but at the same time, I'm kind of thinking out loud, and I guess it's not, because in music, um, you know, it is drawn upon those, like the depths of the soul and almost those heart-wrenching moments. So I guess it makes sense right. to draw on, on death in a way. Yeah. Absolutely. I have another uh, death piece. I was commissioned oh, 10 years ago, uh, 2013, to compose, a, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. It was a very different kind of death piece to, to write because it was, you know, less personal in a way. You know, the other two pieces about my father and my mother could have humor in them. And I could kind of rationalize that as, as, um, as you know, part of death is the, you know, farewell to this, these joyous, this joyous life and these, you know, really energetic people that my parents both were. I had no right in a, in a way to say, Hey, I know new JFK. He was a fun guy. Here's music about that. You know, it had, I really had to sort of limit my process to, to really just come up with a, a, a certain kind of a stately distance, you know, from death. But also I should say that one of my first loves when I first got into you know, so-called classical music was music of the Renaissance. I started playing the lute and got very involved with early music ensembles. And there's a big tradition there of, of writing pieces uh, about fallen other composers. You know, composers would write pieces about their mentors who had died or, you know, royalty who had died or friends who had died. And, and as you said, there's something about the depth of emotion that music is really uniquely suited for, right? Where, where words, you know, can't, are, are a struggle to come, come by. Music bypasses those language centers and just, you know, give you the sort of the, the direct kind of uh, emotional response. Yeah, precisely. I, I very much agree with that. I'm curious in terms of outside of, of your initial inspiration, but if we look specifically at creative fields outside of music, like art, design, architecture, fashion, film, those sorts of things, do you um, draw on any of those? Yeah, I, well, I think probably of those, uh, well, my wife would, would laugh if I, if I tried to answer fashion because, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but I think cooking and film are two things that that I, I, I get a lot of uh, inspiration from. And, and I know this, I guess, partly because I find myself using metaphors from both cooking and film uh, when I teach. So, I mean, even like popular movies, I, I just gave a student some advice recently and, and said, hey, have you ever seen a James Bond movie? You know how James Bond always begins with kind of the, the height of action from the previous mission? The door opens and you're thrown into something that's that's already in mid, you know, at the height of its evolution. I find that you know as a as a metaphor for for helping students and helping myself, not just think okay, everybody, everything has to begin with you know one note and arise from that. Let's just let's just turn on all the lights and see what happens. 
cooking is another example. I, again, I, I remind myself of, and I use as a metaphor with students. It's, I try to, you know, tell myself to not hedge my bet, right. To, to just have what is necessary and, and not, you know, if I want something a little salty, don't just dump the salt in, just put just the right amount of salt in and just the right amount of, 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 uh, you know, saffron or whatever it is. You know, if I think I, oh, I like the flavor of saffron, that doesn't mean I need to dump it on there. So, uh, yeah. And, and so really, really fine cooking is really interesting and, and inspiring to me. It's interesting you bring up cooking because I've had now several guests on the podcast that all reference cooking and that huh. that is such a thing that they think about when they're creating. And, and yeah. specifically, I had some opera singers actually cite that. Not so much the instrumentalists, but opera singers specifically. So that's fascinating that you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a real tradition with opera singers. I think there's even like more than one opera singer cookbook, you know, Pavarotti cookbook and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Let's talk about wellness. Describe a routine you have in place that helps you live a healthier life. I've always been very physical and athletic. I was a professional freestyle skier for a couple of years back in my late teens before I had a career ending injury. But I've always, you know, done yoga and weight training, not, you know, not consistently all the time, but all those things. I've, I've, I still, to this day, play tennis many times, you know, several times during the week. I still have a passion for skiing that I can't ski as much as I used to. I used to ski a hundred days a year. I went to high school at South Lake Tahoe High School in California, up in the Sierras. I was on that mountain by 11 o'clock in the morning through high school. Even though I could only ski a couple weeks worth now, looking forward to that really inspires me and, and activates me to stay in shape because skiing is no fun if you're out of shape. So I do uh, Pilates, weight training, stretching, you know, I do all that tennis. And I would say that I uh, eat primarily vegetarian, maybe 20% of that is vegan. You know, say maybe 80% vegetarian, 20% of that is vegan. And then 20%, you know, fish, chicken. And once in a while, like if I'm in a special occasion, like I was just out to dinner with a conductor after a fabulous performance and he ordered this great bottle of red wine. And I just, you know, I have to have meat. I have to have braised short rib with this <laughs> bottle of Brunello de Montalcino. So. <laughs> As one does. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you pointed to something that gives you energy, what would that be? Who? Um, well, music. I mean, music is gives me energy. And, and when I compose, I move, I dance, right? This maybe goes back to other art forms. Dance is something that really inspires me. I'm not visual art. Uh, you know, I, I like a good painting as much as the next person, but, but so I don't, as I'm composing, don't think about visual art or architecture. I think about more moving physical moving and I love collaborating with that and it, it energizes me other things that energize me are nature the day you know again it's another 
thing about skiing. It's probably the thing about skiing that I now in my old age, when my body is, can't keep the promises that my mind is making. The best thing about skiing is just the magnificent landscapes of, of a high alpine, you know, environment above the tree line, 11,000 feet. It's just like, you know, it's amazing. I feel so privileged and I find that energizing. What is one specific product you highly <laughs> recommend? I highly recommend Purple Carrot, which is a food service. There's a lot of these things like Fresh Direct or whatever. Purple Carrot sends me a box every uh, Monday with three meals, all the, the ingredients and recipe for three vegan meals. They're awesome. And I've been doing this now for two and a half years and very seldom are meals repeated. And it just so happens that when the meals are repeated, it's my, one of, you know, one of the, my family's favorite meals. Um, and it's no, it's not just a, a punt to, to, um, to prepare these things. I mean, you, it's not only produces, you know, a great meal, but it's also taught me a lot about cooking, you know, techniques about how, you know, to work fire in different ways to get different results and, and cutting in certain ways to get different results. And, and it, you know, these meals take, you know, an hour and a half to prepare, but, you know, at the end of the day of composing, sip a glass of wine and, and make purple carrots. It's an awesome, awesome way to end the day. That's really cool. And so is the distinguishing feature that it's a vegan service, right? Yeah. Rather yeah. than, it's because a, there's these other companies. Yeah. And it's, it's vegan. And I've tried some of the other com companies it's vegan, but it's also that the recipes are just really good. I mean, like I say, I'm not exclusively vegan at all. I mean, I even eat meat, fish, and chicken too. But it's you basically every night my family says, Wow, this is like eating in, you know, one of those gourmet vegan restaurants that you might find in San Francisco or, you know, someplace like that. Interesting. Oh, I gotta check that out. What restaurant or bar do you love to eat at when you're in New York City? And then obviously, what do you order there? When I'm in New York City, I'm often, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of different places to, to be, but I find myself at Lincoln Center fairly often. Cafe Fiorello is a go-to place. I love that place. When I'm there, I order the selection of uh, antipasto, antipasti, the, you know, like the eggplant and the artichoke hearts and all those things that they just have. You know, you point to them and you, and you, uh, and you pick it, all that stuff that, you know, grilled vegetables. I am a sucker for that stuff. I just, I could eat that all day. So, yeah. Sounds good. Some, you know, when I was first courting my wife, Sarah Kirkland Snyder, who's also a composer, she was living in the, in the West Village. And there's lots of little places down there we used to love to go to, but I don't even remember the names. But if you, you know, restaurant in New York, Cafe Fiorello is what comes to me, mine. Awesome. Awesome. And by the way, a classical post, we did something on Sarah, your wife a few years ago, actually, I think we did a big oh, awesome. um, feature actually on her. So yes, definitely on oh. our site already. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Let's take a quick break. Did you know classical post is a brand built for your pleasure by gold sound media, a New York creative studio developing content for music lovers around the United States. 
We're always looking for new opportunities to partner with music presenters, artists, and record labels. If you're interested in content to build your community, please get in touch. Head to goldsoundmedia.com. Now, back to the show. So tell us about the National Symphony Orchestra's co-commission. And I'm going to say that, I, forgive me if I say this wrong, Nemesins Pool. Oh, that's, that, there's sort of two ways to pronounce it. Nemesins Pool. Nemesins um, Pool. Or, or I think the real proper way is Nemosines Pool. Uh, Nemosines. I like that. Yeah. And that comes from the, you know, the, the Greek root. You know, mnemon- like it's, it has to do with memory. So mnemonic aid, uh, you know, t- it's an aid for your memory. So mnemo- mnemonic is, um, refers to memory. So mnemosyne was uh, the titan, a titaness, um, and she was the mother of the muses. So she's responsible for, uh, for music and for storytelling because you need memory in both music and storytelling to, to apprehend she had a pool in the underworld where when uh, you, you die, you had two choices. You could either swim in the river Styx, which would cleanse you of all your earthly memories. And that's what most people wanted to do. Or you could swim in Namasane's pool and you would remember all of your memories from all your past lives. And very few people were up for that challenge, but it, it was there. And so that's where the, the, the title comes from. Uh, National Symphony just this last week just did such fantastic performance of the piece with David Robertson conducting. Um, David David knows the piece really well because he recorded it with the Sydney Symphony in a CD that's going to be released tomorrow on Canary Classics. There's a shameless plug. The National Symphony was the last of four co-commissioners to to perform the piece, and. Um, and their original performance uh, was postponed due to COVID. So it was great after a couple of years of this piece kind of lying dormant uh, to just get such a fantastic performance this past week. That's really cool. Okay, so you said four co-commissioners in total. Could you talk about each? How, how did that work or when did it start? Sure, yeah. Los Angeles Philharmonic, Sydney Symphony, the New World Symphony, which is in, in Miami, Florida, and the National Symphony. Got it. And then, so when did these performances start occurring? 2016, LA. Oh my God. Did the world premiere. Uh, Then I think it was uh, uh, 2000, uh, the next season, maybe 2017, 18, Sydney did it. And then New World Symphony did it in the 2000, the season 18, 19. And then National Symphony was going to do it in, you know, fall, I mean, spring of 2020. Wow. Yeah. That didn't happen. So, right. Isn't that crazy? So this is coming like a long, like I I get what you're saying. It kind of has this long dormancy for, and then now it's, it's here. That's really cool. And then obviously not just did it just occur this performance, but then you're, you're seeing the album that is coming out tomorrow, which yeah, this is for our listeners. This is December 8th, but we're actually going to release this early next year. So it's the album will be out actually by the The time uh, people are, are listening, but that's, that's really cool. That, that timeline and crazy, obviously how it's just another pandemic story, how things got thrown off. 
the recording was made with the Sydney Symphony in 2017. So it was, you know, the, the actual recording was made back then. Um, but similarly, the pandemic slowed down all the post-production and all that kind of stuff. So, so it, it was kind of nice to hang the release on this National Symphony, uh, you know, performance. So, yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Is there any other kind of intricacies behind the story of creating this work? I mean, I mean, I guess there is some way the business side of it, you know, you have these four major entities supporting it, but at the same time, from an artistic standpoint. I, it might be interesting for your listeners to, to hear how the idea really arose. It wasn't like I, I didn't, you know, think about Nomasine and her pool and think I'm going to write a piece based on that. I. I had this commission to write a, a big symphony, which is a great for a living American composer. You're frequently asked to write a 10, 12 minute opener for a concert, but you're rarely does the contract say 40 minute symphony. So I was excited about that. So I just started working and I, I sketched one idea, you know, I, I call it digging in the garden where I just kind of sketch different ideas that, that come to me and I had these. Uh, you know, several ideas. I thought, what would, what would happen if I put idea B? Uh, here's idea B, and here's idea. What would happen if I put idea B next to idea A? What, how would that sound? Just as an experiment, trial and error, and it sounded kind of interesting, but it didn't quite work. Um, but it, it was an interesting flavor. You know, it's like again back to cooking. You know, it's like you know, hmm. Uh, I don't even know whether I like it or not, but I've never tasted anything quite like it. And that's intriguing. But then it occurred to me, and here's where cooking doesn't, uh, doesn't analogy doesn't work anymore. Um, it occurred to me that if idea B is something we remember, if it's something that was really important earlier on, in other words, if idea B were in fact idea A and we were coming back to it, if we remember that idea, then this moment would work beautifully and the the awkwardness of it would be actually a feature that helped cue the listener that we're not just moving forward continuously into time but we're actually doing a flashback the, the oddness of it combined with our memory would help us realize oh uh we got to go back in time we're not moving forward and here's here's a film analogy like oftentimes you'll find filmmakers that'll, that'll go to a sepia or a or a black and white to uh, at, a, at a moment to change the color to to signify that this is a flashback. Well, this strange color that happened when these two ideas were crossfaded, in my mind, kind of signified going back. So I, w with that idea, I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into that at every level, in a detail level, in a in a, a larger level, lean into that idea of really using memory and foregrounding how we use memory to understand music, to make sense of music. That's rather profound, especially, I, I know exactly what you mean in film, the CP or black and white denoting you know, a, a flashback or even a flash forward sometimes, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's interesting that you're kind of drawing that parallel into the music. That's really fascinating. In terms of the album coming out, is is it just this work or are there other works on it? There's a, one other work. I I feel like these are two these two are kind of my my best pieces. If I'm if I survive my death, if my music survives, it'll probably be these pieces. The other piece is called Beautiful Passing. I mentioned it earlier. It's a violin concerto that was written 
uh, about my mother's, my mother's passing. And it's just really very, how, how shall I say, it's just very inspired, you know? Um, and I, right after I wrote it, I mean, I was so proud of the piece and, and I would joke with friends. It's this sort of dark humor. I joke with friends like, oh, I need somebody close to me. I, you know, I don't have any more ideas. I need somebody close to me to die because clearly that's when I write my best music. And a beautiful passing came from, um, from well, I'll tell you this, this following story and then I can tell you how the music ar arose from that. My mom had uh, cancer and she, uh, she, sort of, she beat it. She had radiation and chemo and kind of beat it. And meanwhile, Sarah and I uh, found out Sarah was pregnant. We told my mom and she was so excited, but she had a recurrence of the cancer. And the recurrence at, at her age, it's never a good thing, right? So she said, you know, I'm going to fight this. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to fight this because I'm going to meet my grandchild. Uh, but Sarah and I lost the baby. We had a, had a miscarriage. So uh, we had to think about, do we tell my mom? She's hanging on to life in order to meet this grandchild. But, you know, but we felt we had to tell her the truth. We told her and she said, oh, I know that you'll have a happy, healthy family but I can't wait another year. So, um, you know, so that's that. And, well, okay. What does that mean? A week later, she called me and said, Steve, I want you to come visit me earlier today. She was in an assisted living facility. Come and visit me earlier today because today's going to be my last day. And I rushed over there, walked into the, to the building and all the nurses and the aides came up to me, Steve, your mom called us and, and told us, uh, thanked us for all our care and, and said that she wanted to, you know, know how much she appreciated us because today was going to be her last day. So I went up to my mom's apartment and, you know, went in the door and said, Mom, I don't want you to be bummed out if you wake up tomorrow morning and you're not dead because this thing may, may not be your, your call. She laughed. She had a great sense of humor, which is why I could make a joke like that. And she handed me this folder with everything I was supposed to do after she died, you know, uh, call Social Security, uh, you call the uh, funeral home. Now I prepaid for a uh, cremation. Don't let them try to sell you some fancy service or fancy casket because I prepaid for this. And they call the cable company because they should prorate. I'm, I'm not watching TV for 31 days. So you shouldn't have to pay for 31 days of cable and, and all this, everything just to make my life easier. Right. And I started to tear up and she said, Steve, please don't be sad. I've had a beautiful life. Tell everyone I had a beautiful passing. And then she just told me, you know, just sit and work on your laptop. I'm going to slip away in the background. So I, you know, started working a little bit, but I was checking on my mom every few minutes and, and, uh, you know, she was still there, still there. And she waited until Sarah showed up late in the afternoon with some food, some takeout. Sarah showed up and it was the one time where I wasn't looking back all the time. It was maybe even, you know, six or seven minutes. It took Sarah and I to set up the TV trays and get the food out of the containers. And, and then we looked back and, and she was gone. Um, oh my God. And, yeah. And it was, it's just the, you know, I, I, this piece, beautiful passing doesn't try to tell that story. It, it isolates these kind of energies from the story. There's actually a third energy, which is that night when, when she, you know, she died, I, she had made it so easy for me. I just started, I called the funeral home. I just started doing what I saw. But that night around, you know, 2 a.m., I woke up sobbing. And every night for the next two weeks, I could not go to sleep. I, 
I found my, I get into that hypnagogic state, you know, that state between sleep and wake. And, and I couldn't make that transition into sleep. And, you know, I just oh, jerk myself awake. And, and I started to think, wow, I cannot make that transition from wake to sleep for six hours. But my mom managed to make that transition from life to death for eternity, as far as we know. Uh, so, you know, that's pretty impressive. So, and I just started to think, what was that hypnagogic state like for her? I know what it is for me, but what was that, you know, between life and death? What was that flickering of consciousness between life and death like? And so I took those three energies. And the one energy was her serenity, her calm, her stoicism, just, just ready. You know, yes, this is, this is my destiny. This is what I want. Um, that's one force. The other force was a kind of a bull in a china shop. It was like me and all the nurses and the cable company. And we're all, you know, oh, you don't, you can't just say you're going to die. That was just running around. We're just this kind of, you know, jumble of nervous humanity, uh, very contrasting. And then this flickering. And so, like I said, the beautiful passing, the composition doesn't try to tell this story like a movie. It just, now it, it found a musical voice for those three energies and then combined those energies in a way that seemed right to me musically. And absolutely, there are times, particularly at the end, where it's pretty clear, yes, this is, this is my mother letting go and the flickering in his way. But if it were a movie, it would be a very nonlinear movie. Wow. I, I, that's all I can say. I mean, that's an extraordinary story. I've never heard something yeah. like that before. I mean, first of all, I am so sorry for your loss. I mean, that is just, I can't imagine. And then also with losing the child and then, yeah. you know, that how oh, everything my is dog, just. My dog died two days after that. So. Oh my God. I, and my mom and my dog were so close. Whenever I was out of town, my dog, my mom would, you know, stay at my house and walk the dog. And so it was just this, you know, cluster of of tragedy yeah that it is a cluster of tragedy and it's just but it, it's kind of these extraordinary circumstances it sounds like that you uh, yeah. tapped into and then created this new work and like you said i guess to backtrack a little bit you're you feel that that is one of your greatest works this and then the other one that we just started the symphony that's on the album coming out tomorrow right yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's I, I can't wait to listen to this. Yeah, because yeah. now having this context and I hope that our listeners also <laughs> listen to this, because I think that is I keep using the word extraordinary, but th it is. I mean, it, there's no other way to yeah. put it. Yeah, I don't think you can miss it. One of the reasons, you know, the inspiration was so clear and these these energies were so clear. It just it helped me make the music very clear, you know, and, and you'll hear that. Right. Even if you didn't know that you'd you'd hear these energies, you'd hear this, you know, kind of glorious cacophony. And then this singular voice, the violin, you know, very calm and serene, just trying to, you know, try, you know, and the, the violin coaxes the oboe to join, you know, and then the glorious cacophony comes back and, and then the clarinet joins and, and gradually like a Pied Piper, you know, settling everybody down. And I think you can't, you can't miss the interplay of those energies. Yeah. Just the fact that your mom also just had that definitive choice if you will of just saying yeah. this is i'm yeah. going to die today and that's that you know i think that yeah. is the most yeah well I heard that kind of from, <laughs> yeah i learned that from my father too watching my father die that you know i was away my mom picked me up at the airport and said oh steve your your father's had a stroke and 
the doctor is, you know, he's, they're amazed that he's hanging in there, but they think that he's waiting for you uh, to, you know, to return. And so we went right from the airport to the, uh, to the hospital where my dad was, and he, he was completely uncommunicative. It didn't seem like he could, you know, kind of a, a, a really uh, a hard to listen to kind of breath, which they call a death rattle actually. But he was, you know, clearly alive, but couldn't pay any attention to us. So my mom and I were there, spent the night, the next day, and oh, I went home and took a shower, and several days went by. And, and finally, a nurse said to us, sometimes people who are fighters need to be told that it's okay to let go. And it seems like your dad was a fighter, and he was. He was literally, with a boxer, earned his way through college as a you know, child of the Depression, you know, one of eight kids, as, as far as he tells it, you know, walked eight miles uphill both ways to the snow to school. He, he was a fighter. So prompted by that, my mom and I went to his bedside and said, you know, I said, dad, you, you've been a great dad. I've got a good career. And I, I teach at Princeton University and mom is going to be taken care of and we'll take care of each other. It's okay. You can let go. And right then he, his, his body, he was a redheaded Irishman. His body changed color from his toes. It turned gray and then just gray up his body. You could just see it, you know, the, the blood stopped going and, and he turned gray. And then as it passed through his eyes and, and then he was gone. And I just like, you know, I, like I said, I didn't think he could even hear us, but he clearly heard us and clearly decided, okay, now I can let go as my mom did, as my mom had decided at a certain point, now I can let go. Sarah's, you know, Sarah's here. Steve's got company. I will let go. Yeah. Wow. I mean, again, it's just a crazy story. And also to see yeah. that passing. I mean, the way you yeah. describe it, I, I've never heard that. Be, I mean, I've heard various iterations, but not this idea yeah. of this uh, moving yeah. up from the toes to the head. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, he was, he was like, you know, he, he was always, he was always like too hot. He was always naked. I mean, he was like kind of a nudist. He'd come home from work. So I don't know. So he just take all his clothes right away. But yeah, there was a lot of skin exposure. You could just, you really could see it. And it moved at a definite pace. And as it went out, I, then I put my hand on his, on his chest and yeah, there was no more heartbeat. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, truly. I don't know how to even wrap the podcast up after <laughs> that discussion, but I do have one last question. What does success mean to you? Success means, um, I should say, evolve. Now it means just having collaborators that still want to work with me, you know, that just continuing to have people that want to, you know, want to either work with me, create with me, work with me, perform music of mine. Right before I got online to have this discussion with you, I, I had a meeting with Tim McAllister, a saxophone player, and and uh, some people that support us both and how to get a, a concerto for saxophone that I, I could write for us. And, you know, just to, to keep having an excuse to do that. And if that all falls apart, if, if nobody wants to commission me, I still have, I still have a, a couple solo electric guitar albums in me. And so success in that case would mean just continuing to have the motivation and the ideas and just to continue to have that energy to, to create, whether, you know, whether it's an orchestra commissioning me or, or just the energy to put together a studio in my basement to make some solo guitar records. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. 
Thanks for listening to the Classical Post podcast. I hope you have found it meaningful and that it gave you new ideas to cultivate your creativity to be better in business and life. So let's stay in touch. Remember to follow this podcast to get notified of new episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter for album recommendations and editorial on leading artists. Just head to classicalpost.com slash subscribe. Thank you.